0: Hey, everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which is a Penguin Random House publication that came out last summer. It is your guide to navigating a healthy pregnancy for mom and baby. So, why did I write that book? Because I spent almost 20 years working in labor and delivery as a registered nurse. And I've been writing the Pregnancy and Maternal Health Beat for more than a dozen years, and I seriously have the inside track on what's really going on inside the birth world. Some of what's going on is absolutely about making sure mamas are healthy and have excellent, healthy babies. Some of it is about other issues, and I want you to know the difference. So that's what Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is all about, It's about having the right information so you can make the right decisions, right? And we do that here on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting by having really good conversations with all kinds of people who are related to the field of pregnancy, parenting, motherhood, feminism, healthcare, politics, the whole enchilada, because it's everything. That's what parenthood is about. So, it's August, and August is one of the busiest months on a labor ward because more women have babies in August and September than any other months of the year. And when you think back nine months, we're looking at the holiday season ramping up, cold weather settling in, people are snuggling up to stay warm, and nine months later, voila, babies. Um, We also see a lot of babies nine months after natural disasters and, oddly enough, Presidential elections, um, the de- disaster part I get, right? You turn to each other for comfort, obviously. Uh, but elections, I guess that kind of depends on whether you're candidate won or not. You could be celebrating or you could be consolation prize, right? I don't know. With this election being as crazy it is, as it is, I imagine next August will be busier than ever for birthday season. So it's been a busy week in the inbox. I've been getting a lot of questions from all over the world, quite a few from Africa this week. Um, And I love teaming up with another labor nurse or midwife or doctor to answer them. So this week I'm gonna grab one of my favorite obstetricians in the whole wide world to help us out. Um, She's also got a great perspective on how we do prenatal care and birth services both here in the United States and in other countries. And I'm here to tell you, we do things differently. So without much further ado, let's get my friend, Dr. Heather Weldon on the line. Hi, Heather. Hey there, Jean. How are you doing today? I'm good. Am I catching you in your car? Are you actually sitting in your car because it's the only place in the world you have an office at this moment?
1: That is the the sad truth of privacy
0: at this moment. (laughs) So it's not a matter of you don't have an office. It's just that you don't have anywhere private to speak. Correct. I have a shared office and uh, my
1: my colleague is in it. So I don't want to compromise her space. So we've come out to the car on a gorgeous sunny day.
0: Well, that's good to know. I remember a million years ago, an author contacted me and she was writing a book about um, sacred spaces and altars and I have no <laughs> idea why she contacted me because that's not really the circle that I no. stand right in. but she contacted me and she said no no no, no. I really want to talk to you um, and I had to go out to my car to have that conversation yeah. and one of the questions she asked me was where is where what space can you say is only yours it's your oh, sacred it space and so i thought well okay there's my bedroom well no not that you know, because i share I that, that with my husband yes. and all the kids are there okay well then there's my off no the kids are in and out there and my <laughs> husband's closet is in my office so um my side of the bed no yeah no not right. completely The
1: they are often yeah yes.
0: And I think that this author eventually just kind of gave up on me because I did tell her, I'm sitting in my car. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, Heather, let me introduce you. Thank um, you. Heather Weldon, MD, is an obstetrician who's currently employed at Peace Health Medical Group in Vancouver, Washington, and current department chair of Peace Health Southwest Medical Center. Um, in practice since two thousand, as a general obstetrician gynecologist practitioner, including three years in New, Ze- in New Zealand. Yes. Um, yeah. So now that I have read that bio, I want you to answer the very hard question: Who are you, and what do you do? Who are? Oh, good question. I am a
1: happy, very have a profession that I really enjoy. So um, when I'm not working as a I'm happily married dog and love the outdoors. And then when I'm working as a gynecologist, that, an obstetrician, that is 100% what I do. So I do full women's health care. And, um, I am really, um, keen on collaborative care and, uh, encouraging the patient to be as responsible for her health as I am responsible for giving her the right information to make those decisions.
0: That's a good description. And what else? Awesome. What, what, what else? else? Yeah. My, um,
1: you know other professional opportunities right now are department here at the hospital and we're working on policies to improve patient care and then other than that i'm a spanish speaker um, so that really is fun with travel and work um, i love scuba diving and hiking and cooking and hanging out with my family and friends so yeah
0: you like scuba diving i do i didn't i do did i know that fantastic
1: about you? I have no idea that you did know that. I mean, it's not anything I would ever do in the Pacific Northwest. I'm very much a tropical girl. Mm. So I'd rather be in warm water where I don't have to wear much of a a neoprene thickness suit. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so that makes it a little harder to access. But, yes, I do enjoy doing that and enjoy uh, working out in the gym and doing Zumba and
0: just keeping it balanced. All right. Well, you and I met years and years and years ago when we were both working in a big city hospital labor and delivery unit um, in Portland. Yes. And we did a whole lot of births together for a few we years did. there. We did. Yeah. And then you moved to New Zealand. So and then I moved to New Zealand. I kind of yeah. want you to talk, if you will, about both of those really different working situations.
1: Absolutely. So, where I was personally, um, in 2006 was an overworked, uh, woman who probably had the balance shifted too much towards being a doctor and not enough towards being a human. And, um, I was really burnt out. and knew that the way I was doing medicine, um, was not sustainable and uh, for me personally or even for my patients making decisions that um, were not medically inappropriate but but maybe not as well-rounded as it could have been so I had to step away to figure out what was the next step for me and um, through a big road trip I kept meeting people from New Zealand and so I thought I'll look at it I'll I still love OB-GYN, but I need to do it a different way. And when I went there, it's a national health care system, and as an obstetrician, you're very much a consultant. So I'm not someone who would be providing basic prenatal care. Um, it's a country that is 100% midwife-run, and the OB consultant would act as a specialist who would um, give advice on, on management of medical conditions during pregnancy and assist with difficult deliveries. So it was a real change. Um, in mentality and um, a little sad for me not getting to participate in normal deliveries which is always a joy Um, so I went down from doing you know tens of deliveries a month to maybe one or two which might have been a C-section or a VORCEP delivery and um, I think what was lovely about it there is that people define health as feeling well enough to live their life comfortably Where in American, we often define health by blood pressure recordings and lab measurements and um, things that aren't tangible. Mm -hmm. And so thinking in that mentality really changed everything that I did. And also, there wasn't a rush, like there is in America, to do this and do that. Um, And people take it as it comes. Um, And I think from just an obstetric standpoint... um, there are so many ways to have a normal, um, unmedicated vaginal delivery, and um, and that pregnancy is not a disease. It's absolutely a healthy condition, and there are things that come up that we can modify. But in general, treating it as um, you know just a, a normal thing was was a real pleasure. So I enjoyed that a lot and was able to kind of bring that mentality back with me and have a lot more patience um, for a woman's delivery than I might have had based on the parameters that
0: were normal to me before I went to New Zealand. So when you came back to the United States, um, what was the culture shock like? What was re-entry like? Reentry, entry goodness. Um, certainly the the... The
1: epidural rate in New Zealand was 15%. The C-section rate at my particular hospital was probably ranging between 20 to 25%. And they do get to use nitrous, which is a difference um, for labor pain. Um, But when I came back, the epidural rate at my hospital was 95%. Um, The anxiety that women felt about pain was tremendous and the patience for certain criteria being met in terms of progress and labor was um, was absent for for a normal mom normal baby. So for instance, someone hadn't you know pushed a baby out in two hours then there was more discussion of talking about cesarean. So readjusting to that was challenging. And also just the pace that we run our clinics and the time that you have with a patient um, in America compared to the time that you have in New Zealand was um, a big shock.
0: So, how much time would you have in? I mean, it's commonly said that you have about seven minutes with your patient here in the United States. Right. I mean, we
1: might have a block time of 15 minutes, but by the time the nurse gets the vital signs and, you know, has her weight checked and what have you, it would be 10 minutes or less yeah. per patient. And how about um, in New so- Zealand? In New Zealand, midwives come to their homes for the most part to do prenatal checks. But when we had a clinic, it was generally a half hour visit, Uh Um, unless it was a group prenatal visit, which was quite common as well. And um, so that's just a different model that we don't have a lot of experience with in America.
0: Not as much, but we're starting to see a little bit. It's starting to, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So what are the disparities that women faced in New New Zealand that... You know, I remember you talking about certain certain issues, social issues, physical issues. Maybe you could describe it. What's it like for women in New Zealand?
1: Um, I think for some women who live in rural areas, access to care on all levels is hard, but their expectations are realistic in light of that So So, you know, if you live an hour and a half out from a major city, um, you might not have access to emergency care um, that could really make a difference. Um, So that certainly is an issue. But I, again, feel that um, most people take that in stride and and plan well. And if they know they're going to have a high-risk pregnancy, um, find some friends or family that might be in that city that they can live with. Um, Certainly... Resources are limited in terms of, like, if you had an abnormal pap smear um, that suggested cancer, in the United States we could usually get you seen within two weeks. It might take months in New Zealand to get seen just because of the lack of the numbers of specialists who could who could do that for you. Um, their, their access to good... Um, quality prenatal vitamins and what have you is fine. And it's a hundred percent paid for. Um, you can get appropriate ultrasounds. Um, I think, um, yeah, if you're poor, you're going to have a higher, harder time with transportation and food issues. There is access to those resources, but they're harder to come by because they're spread out in rural communities. Yeah. So I think in general, you can get things. It just might take longer Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a true emergency, it can, it can be taken care of. And so certainly the communication would work for us on labor and delivery, because anesthesia wouldn't be in-house. But if we had a high-risk patient, we'd encourage them to come in just in case. Mm-hmm. And, and that worked really well,
0: hmm. yeah. I was interested in what you said about expectations, because that's something that I've heard from um, a couple of american doctors who have gone to work in developing countries or yeah. other countries where services are harder to access and where they have a really different model and right i remember one obstetrician saying that there wasn't necessarily this expectation that every birth is going to be perfect every birth is going to be deliver you know an absolutely perfect mom and baby. It's just not a realistic expectation. It isn't one here either and yet most American women have that expectation.
1: Absolutely and I think you know when I looked at various um, consent forms um, from you know just contractive care of midwives in New Zealand literally the word death um, of either yourself or the child um, was on the consent form and I don't think American providers would be comfortable having that in print. It's certainly something that we would imply or discuss outright that it could happen with the surgical procedure or what have you. But the fact that it's more commonplace as a discussion point – was, was the, a really refreshing change for me. I, I think that, um, the very first patient I met in New Zealand, it was very cute. She's like, have you ever had a surgery before? She's like, oh yeah, my arm is munted. I'm like, you're going to have to tell me what that means. And she goes, oh, it's just knackered. I'm like, again, you're going to have to tell me what that means. She's like, oh, it just doesn't work well. And when I looked at it, it was a funny angle and she had a, a reduced grip strength on it. And in America that would never fly for her. It worked well enough. Yeah. And yeah. I think, um, you know, she's like, I, f- I fell off my horse. I broke my arm. I'm, I'm really happy to have any function at all.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think that's the kind of mentality yeah. that is just a little different that life comes with knocks and we can always hope for the best, but that's maybe not what we get.
0: Right. It isn't necessarily the goal to put somebody back together exactly as they were before the right. event. It was to get, it's to get them to the best possible place. Exactly right. <clears throat> and those possibilities can be really different depending on where you live, who your provider is, all of that. Yes, without a doubt. So what are the disparities that women face here in the United States? Uh,
1: labor and delivery? What do you think? but
0: you cut out for just a little bit there say that again
1: in disparities within labor and delivery or obstetric care yeah um i think that um, it's very challenging the limitations that private insurance has for some patients on appropriate testing Mm -hmm. within a pregnancy um i i know that some of my patients might not elect certain um maybe ultrasound screening or genetic testing because they can't afford the, the copay mm-hmm. even when it's very appropriate like it might be um a 40 year old woman with an ultrasound mm-hmm. that is suggestive of down syndrome mm-hmm. yet she can't afford the copay on the blood test
2: mm-hmm.
1: where that would be a covered benefit even from state insurance here in washington um i think the access to nitrous oxide for labor management is uh, something that we're finally going to look at again. Um, And I know we're going to have a pilot program within our hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, There certainly are some concerns for fetal brain tissue that I don't think were ever looked at when it was used more routinely. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we need to keep that in mind. But I will tell you from an anecdotal experience Allowing a woman to have that so much increased her sense of control over her pain management and pregnancy and absolutely reduced epidural and um, interventions in general. And what was different about New Zealand, um, the, the only access to narcotic that a midwife could prescribe without a doctor's cosign was Demerol, which is one that America has not used appropriately for a long time in pregnancy because it can build up in a babe. So that was something that was a little um, distressing to me. And thankfully, within the hospitals that I worked in, I did have fentanyl, which is a safer narcotic um, that we use routinely here in America and and more broadly in New Zealand.
0: Um, I just want to interject a little bit there yeah. that... Um, One of the concerns that we have about narcotic use during labor is that if it doesn't clear the baby, you know, it's going to go into mom, it's going to go across the placenta, it's going to go to the baby somewhat, certainly not full dose, and then it's going to clear the baby's body, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. When you
1: use the short-acting narcotics, that, that risk of it building up in the baby's system and causing sedation at the time of birth is much less. When you use something like Demerol or morphine, those pose a much greater risk to the baby. I mean, mean, so, they
0: wake up, yeah. they, they're born too sleepy to take their first breaths. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We hate that.
1: <laughs> and I, I think that in general, um, women in America are overwhelmed with information from everywhere about how to do things, how not to do things, and who to trust, that um, the anxiety is... Extreme. Is unparalleled. It's yeah. unparalleled. And I think um, I'm all about education. And I would never tell anybody one source is better than another. But um, I just feel that women in America are often paralyzed with trying to make the right choice. And they're very untrusting of their own ability sometimes <laughs> to yeah. get through the process with help. Yeah. So um, that that is a big disparity. For sure, I agree just with the, you. Yeah, I the think confidence that, that a, a woman can approach a delivery without, um, without, I don't. There's just a lot of concern that they're going to make the wrong decision.
0: I think there's a, also a lot of concern that they're going to be manipulated into um, that, interventions that they don't really that. need.
1: Uh, thank you for saying that because I do think that since I've returned, which is not oh, six years ago, um, the 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 impression that um medical medical care in pregnancy is something that is imposed on you as opposed to something that is offered or that you participate in is um increasing for sure and you know surgical abuse or whatever words are being thrown out there, it's really distressing to me. And mm-hmm. I know that, um, Western medicine has a lot to be responsible for, but, um, it's, it's a concept that I think, um, is really dangerous because it, it, it limits a, A good discussion between patients and physicians. I have patients come to their first prenatal visit and, you know, I ask them about their goals and, and what have you. And their number one thing is, I don't want a Mm C-section. That's the, it's, it's not, I want a healthy baby. That's not the first thing they say. Right. And that would have been the first
0: thing they say 10 years ago. So, um, I write about that in my book. I write about that very scenario that, you know, well, most well-trained, ethically practicing, compassionate obstetricians are gonna agree. Yeah, I don't want you to have a C-section either. But seriously, is not having a C-section your number one goal? Exactly, and I, I think you approach any situation as
1: saying that, you're gonna have a really hard time ever figuring out when is it appropriate. Yeah. It, you're yeah. already at adversarial position and um and i i think you know and i try to step back and i i try to ask hey what what does that mean to you and i i think most people see it as um a huge invasion of their their body yeah and which i 100 percent agree and if we get to the point where i can say hey you know if your baby's heart rate was dropping. And we were really concerned that it wasn't going to survive the process of labor and delivery. Would a C-section make sense to you then? Well, absolutely. Right. Okay. So I I think um, it's just creating trust. And um, a lot of people arrive at our doorstep with not much trust. And it's it's a bigger job than I used to have 10 years ago to regain it, but it's an appropriate thing to do, obviously.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So from time to time, women send me a link to this article. It was written by Anobi in Texas and it's titled top 10 signs. Your doctor is planning to perform an unnecessary cesarean section on you. And I, I am familiar
1: with the article.
0: Yeah, we all are. And I sent it to you and you said you found it cynical. So yes. should we, should we kind of just do the 10 bullet points and say what they are? Sure. Okay. Let's find it. Okay. Um, One, your physician arrives to labor and delivery immediately after hours and says, I just don't think this baby is going to fit. Two, it's your third trimester, routine office visit, and your physician says, I think this is going to be a big baby. You should just have a C section. Three, we should induce at 39 weeks and your baby is getting too big. Four, Uh, Your physician performs routine ultrasounds at the end of pregnancy to see how big your baby is. We've got a theme here, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) Five. You have a positive herpes titer or history of herpes. The baby will get it if you deliver vaginally. Six. Your baby is breech. You need to have a C-section. Seven. You've pushed for two hours. Eight. I scheduled you for an induction at 39 weeks. It is just so much more convenient for you. Nine. First visit at seven weeks pregnancy. Congratulations, you're having twins. I'll go ahead and schedule your C-section at 38 weeks. But don't worry if you go into labor early. I will cut you right away. And 10, first pelvic exam in the office. Hmm, your pelvis is pretty narrow. Right. So. Just jump in, Heather. Just jump in. Oh, goodness. I mean, I,
1: I, there are some times when, you know, let's say, so showing up after hours, We our hospital has eliminated that. So the way our group works is half of us are laborists, which means uh, doctors who are on labor and delivery, and don't see patients in the clinic. And they do our deliveries for us. Mm-hmm. They are there 24-7, and I rotate through that call schedule as well. And there is no need oh. to be anywhere else for that physician. So we we've eliminated that. But I... I am challenged with that. And I I certainly have seen it happen before where they know there's a soccer game going, the woman isn't pushing as fast as, as they'd like to get to their kid's game on time and they'll offer a C-section. And, um, I think it's up to the patient to say, why, you know, please tell me why, what are some criteria that we need to hit before that's my ultimate option Mm -hmm. so that certainly does happen and I think it can be avoided it certainly can be avoided too um, by eliminating elective inductions Mm -hmm. and um, I know you have talked about that a lot and um, for our hospital no one is allowed to have an elective induction unless they're 39 weeks and this is a national initiative Um, and certain states do have rules on this as well So they need to be completed their 39 weeks and they need to be adequately dilated. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a little tool called a Bishop score that tells us the percentage that a woman might need a C-section. And um, essentially, you know, six or greater, nine or greater is ideal. And... um, but in general, I think setting up no expectations for elective inductions. Mm-hmm. You got pregnant. I'm sorry if you're uncomfortable. <laughs> That's how it is at the end of pregnancy. Yeah. And I think um, if you really don't want a C-section,
0: don't have an elective induction. Absolutely. Though um, there are times when an ele- when an induction is absolutely medically indicated. Absolutely.
1: If you have preeclampsia, if you have uh, gestational diabetes that requires medication, if you have Um, let's say you're 42 years old, we know that your placenta might age a little quicker by your due date um, than it would otherwise. But, you know, invo- inductions can still be avoided by doing proper monitoring of mm-hmm. that baby.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, there are definitely times where it will come up. And so I'm talking purely because maybe the doctor and the patient might be able to be at the same place at the same time, or a mom is really uncomfortable and doesn't want to be pregnant anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, those are the ones that can be avoided. Um, big babies, uh, it, you know, even in this article, the doctor does talk about, there are very good criteria for when we would offer a primary C-section to someone with a big baby. Um, And that is if it's uh, not diabetic and weighs 5,000 grams, so 11 pounds, Mm -hmm. or if they're diabetic and they think that they might be 4,500 grams, so close to 10 pounds. Inducing for a presumed big baby actually encourages the risk of C-section. So um, there's no place for um, bringing someone's uh, labor, you know, on unspontaneously. If you have a big baby, you're going to more likely end up in forceps, vacuum, or C-section.
0: And we've mentioned before on this podcast that you really, there is no really accurate way to determine what that baby's going to uh, weigh until that baby exactly. is out and on the scale.
1: And right. it mean, can be two I, pounds off know- either way. That's right. I've been doing this for sixteen years. You you know, you did it even longer. Yeah. We can lay our hands on and we can have a good idea, but we can be a half a pound to a pound off. Ultrasounds are generally one to two pounds off towards right. term. Right. So um it's uh there there is not
0: accuracy for sure. And um, um all physicians know that about ultrasound. All physicians know that about ultrasound and without I've, a doubt. I've had women, you know, ask me, well He did an ultrasound and said the baby was too big. Is he trying to manipulate me? Interesting. I've had that direct question. Is he just trying to manipulate me? Well,
1: well, um, I will tell you. He might be trying to
0: sway your decision. Yes, I
1: agree. Um, as an obstetrician, one of the most gray hair producing uh, events for us is a shoulder dystocia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's when a big baby comes partly through the birth canal, the head delivers, but the shoulder gets stuck behind the pubic bone. You got a linebacker. Those are incredibly scary experiences for a delivering physician and the patient. Yeah. And um, there are times when we... Um, we do various maneuvers, and sometimes you have to break the baby's collarbone, do very dramatic things to get the baby delivered. Otherwise, and they
0: can suff- suffocate. Otherwise, they
1: would suffocate. They can um, have nerve damage to their arm. They can have all sorts of things happen. And so, certainly, wanting to minimize the risk of that is admirable, but I don't necessarily think that it's uh, by offering primary C section.
0: Right, right. Yeah. There's always time for the C-section when you really, really need it. Right, Yeah.
1: absolutely. And I'll tell you from our program, um, we've been steadily reducing the C-section rate annually and we're now at 23%. And um, when I started there just six years ago, it was 33.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So just having more patience for a woman pushing, Mm -hmm. um, if she's making progress and mom and baby are stable, you can push as long as you need to, to get that baby out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, um, being more patient for dilation during labor, which, you know, historically used to be, if you haven't changed your cervix more than a centimeter in two hours, then you were a failure to progress. Um, I think we're much more patient now and we'll try many, many more things than we used to. And also just having doctors in house makes a big difference. You have nowhere else to be, you can, you know, have a nice, Nice delivery with
0: as long as it takes. Yeah. That is a huge that's a huge change in policy that we've seen over the last ten years that is making a difference.
1: Yes. Yeah. Big difference. That and, and also
0: that yeah, and having and more midwives and, in the in on the unit.
1: Without a doubt. And I think, you know, for people who don't necessarily have access to midwives where they're really different. I mean I definitely have there's a whole spectrum of midwives at our hospital from interventional to non-interventional. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have access to a midwife, consider, if you can afford it, a doula. Yeah. And a doula is a, an unmedically trained person who knows how to support women in labor. And it is absolutely a, um, a valuable asset in reducing C-sections.
0: If nothing else, she's an advocate. She's, a She's an between. advocate. That's yeah. exactly
1: right. She's an advocate for your desires and can help triangulate the conversation um, with the nurses and the physicians right. for
0: sure. For so long, we we um, depended on fathers and partners to play that role, but they don't know what they're doing any more than the no, mother does, and not they're stressed
1: at all. and they're super stressed, and um, yeah, super stressed. So yeah. I, I think having um you know someone who isn't. Who is invested in nothing more than a safe outcome that reflects your desires, um, that isn't a family member, Mm -hmm. and isn't a (laughs) mother-in-law. It's always always valuable. Yeah, absolutely. As far as the herpes goes, um, we have, for over 10 years, we've been using suppression of medications to um, prevent a herpes outbreak
0: at term. Let's talk about that just a little bit more. A suppression of medication, that means that if a woman has either an active herpes lesion or she has a herpes titer that's um, abnormal, then you take medications and that right. if, reduces its presence.
1: That's right. So um, Zane Brown up at University of Washington a long time ago started doing research and actually found out that anybody with genital herpes can shed virus asymptomatically, um, maybe one out of 10 days. And so they started having women in pregnancy take medication daily to prevent an outbreak or even prevent asymptomatic shedding, and their campus had a dramatic reduction in neonatal herpes cases. And neonatal herpes can be fatal, so it is something that we work extremely hard to prevent. So anybody who knows that they have herpes, has any concerns that they have herpes, should absolutely do that at 36 weeks. And I even do it with some of my C-section patients as well, because they're going to be paying attention to their perineum and changing pads and doing a lot more work washing
2: mm-hmm. right
1: after delivery and um, you know you don't want to inadvertently have a herpes outbreak that you actually accidentally touch your baby right. so um, it's a very standard therapy and it would never you never be um, you know if you have the opportunity now there are unfortunately some women who don't know that they have herpes and they might walk into labor and delivery um, with an active outbreak in labor And those are the gals that we probably will say, you're going to be safest having a primary C-section. If there is an opportunity to get them on suppression before that moment, then take advantage. Yeah, yeah.
0: But that's an unusual situation. Very
1: unusual situation. Yeah, yeah. And I can't, what were the other take-home messages from his little article? I think it was just, you know, have you pushed for two hours or more? Well, as long as you're making progress go for it. I will tell you, if you've pushed extremely well for two hours and that baby has not come down, then we could say your chance of C-section is going up, but I don't think it has to be two hours. I right. think you come up with your provider and say, what's a good time limit? And that provider should sit there and make sure you're pushing really well before we ever commit someone to a C-section for not progressing.
0: I've had people ask me about certain time limits and you yeah, know, like, you have to deliver by twenty four hours after your water breaks or no else, way. or no. you can't push for more than two hours. These are random numbers that are based on certain factors. They do not apply to everybody. And as long as everybody's still okay at two hours or twenty-four hours or three hours or whatever it is, keep going. Do what you're gonna do. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I people will run into I,
1: I, I think there certainly are providers and practitioners that are really comfortable with certain timelines. And it doesn't mean that they can't be challenged. And um, I think anybody needs to justify why they say that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of ways
1: to get the same result.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, I get get emails from women who find me either through Ask the Labor Nurse or through the books or Mm -hmm. through the podcast. I get emails from women all over the world. Um, and I got a couple of this this week and I kind of think that they are both somewhere in Africa. And, I, and okay. I'm just saying that because of, you know, their email addresses or the way that they pose questions. So okay. So I wondered if you wanted to just take a crack at answering these. They're, they're happy They're super common. So I got one from a reader. Um, She says, morning, I am 40 weeks and five days pregnant today. I am worried about my due date. As my doctor said, the latest date to deliver is the 9th of August, and I passed that. And also nurses complain about kilograms of the baby. They think the baby is too big. What must I do now? Okay.
1: So um, I think if she's speaking in 40 weeks and five days, then we've confirmed that she has A really secure due date and essentially what that means is that we feel that by her last menstrual period and by ultrasounds that we're confident um, of her due date some women who maybe don't have uh, regular periods and don't have ultrasounds sometimes the due date might be in flex by a week or two Mm -hmm. so the latest uh, forty weeks is what we consider our due date, and going past it, I don't know if this woman's had babies before, but it sounds like it's her first. It does um, is incredibly normal. Um, it is not a a deadline. Um, at all like two and hours
0: and 24 hours
1: <laughs> exactly yeah. right so yeah. if you imagine a bell-shaped curve where the majority of people are going to deliver within a handful of days of 40 weeks then the majority of people are going to fall in there but there are plenty of gals who make it out to 42 weeks and um and and can safely do it and that can be normal for them so as far as the weight goes um you know, I'm not sure how they're determining that. Yeah. And I don't know if they're empirically saying, oh, just because now you've gone past your due date, your baby's gaining weight. Well, it certainly can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she can't deliver it.
2: Right.
1: So um, what would be my advice for her? Um my comfort range is definitely getting people delivered by 41 to 42 weeks. And I have to admit that part of that is anecdotal. Um, I have had a couple of patients walk in at 41 in one day with a dead baby. Um, but 42 weeks, I think that while everything might be fine at rest in labor, sometimes we don't see that baby behave as well as we want it to. Mm -hmm. So, even if you want to avoid that, you get monitoring. Monitoring. I'm sorry. So we look at the fluid level around the baby with ultrasound. We listen to its heart rate with a Doppler monitor for 20 minutes. And if all those things are reassuring, stay pregnant and repeat that in two to three days. Um, what I if think, they
0: don't have the resources? What if this
1: woman what if they is don't from have,
0: Africa and they don't that's have That's
1: right i I think she could ask her provider to potentially do stripping the membranes or stretch and sweep is what it's called in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It's a cervical exam where the provider puts um, his or her finger between the cervix and the amniotic membrane and kind of um, does a sweep and that can release chemicals that can stimulate labor. Um, certainly, being more sexually active can help stimulate labor, um, and I think teaching a mom how to do kick counts so that she's really paying attention to does my baby seem that it's acting as I expect it to.
0: Right. Yeah. And if that baby is not, then she gets herself to the closest healthcare facility and and hopefully gets good medical advice. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. So
1: I think, yeah, it's totally normal to go past your due date and you're in great company. And um, I don't think it is a empiric need for induction.
0: Okay, we got another one who I'm not sure where this comes from. But I I don't know, I just kind of feel like it's probably from Africa. Um, She says, Hi, I would like to find out how safe am I and my baby? I got four C section and I sterilized two thousand nine. Now I'm pregnant. Can I still Yep. Yeah. <laughs> can I still make it until thirty four weeks without tearing the uterus? What can I do to prevent tearing? Oh interesting. Isn't it? And I wonder
1: why she says thirty-four. I do too. Okay. So when you've had lots of incisions through your seat, through your uterus, the tissue in the area that's cut open becomes thinner and more scarred, and it is less flexible. Um, so as the uterus grows, there's a small chance that it has of tearing open, and we call that dehiscence or uterine rupture or uterine scar separation.
0: And it's a really
1: With, low chance. It is. It's 0.7%. So that's for a woman with a history of C-section. For all comers, they they reckon it's about 0.3%. So the reason we pay attention to it is that it doubles, but it's still less than a 1% chance. And it is still more likely to happen in labor then it would happen spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So for this gal, um, if she were in America, we would be planning a repeat C-section for her at 39 weeks, as long as mom and baby don't have other medical conditions that would say deliver earlier. So her chance of getting to 39 weeks without a scar rupture is 99.3 percent.
0: Excellent. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to make. Sh- I'm going to send a link to this podcast to this uh, listener. But this is the
1: other side of that is that anybody who has had that many C-sections or even a history of one or two, if you are planning to deliver in a hospital, when you do start labor, please come to the hospital sooner rather than later. It doesn't necessarily mean that intervention will be offered, but it's a safe place to be monitored while, while you go through labor on that very, very small chance that you get the worst outcome. You would be in the right place to have it taken care of.
0: Excellent. Okay. Um, so what else do you want our listeners to know about, you know, about being an obstetrician, about the changes you want to see in the birth world, about, about whatever? What do you want people to know?
1: Um, certainly from my own relationships with my patients, I want to know that I am there to give them um, a safe baby and a safe mom. And 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 within that parameter, meet their desires in labor and delivery, but also um, that I have medical expertise. That if certain scary things come up, that you need to trust me and my colleagues to be able to help you get there. And at every step of the way, it should be an open conversation. So it really, really distresses me when I know my patients feel like what happens at the hospital is being done to them mm-hmm. as opposed to um this is why we're doing it. And I want everybody to be able to advocate, um, to ask if if um you know I don't understand why you're offering that. Will you explain it to me in a way that I can't understand. And um and that provider really needs to step up and do it. And I I think that um the majority of times where people have been um, Disappointed in their experience is that their expectations were not adequately communicated to the team that was there for their delivery. And I'll tell you, sometimes expectations are unrealistic. And um, if you get a chance to talk about them ahead of time, it makes it a much safer, less stressful place to discuss them. Right, and so, um, I think you know, really encourage that when you hit that thirty six thirty seven week mark in your prenatal care, that you have time with your provider to talk about expectations. And so everybody's on the same page, and there aren't any last minute surprises.
0: um One question that i that just occurred to me is that you know when you're going about talking to women in the world about their birth exper- experiences, So, so often they will say, oh, well, I had to have an emergency C-section. Right. And those of us that work in the industry know, yeah, that probably wasn't an emergency. But women are kind of, um, they're kind of drawn to that explanation of what happened to them. Yes. And they probably didn't have an emergency. They may have needed that C-section. But, you know, what do you think about that? I think
1: um, that in the moment, it's so stressful that they might not be fully able to understand why it was indicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so just, I think, unplanned becomes the word emergency.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And therefore, it, it becomes explainable. There was no other option for me. Therefore, I had to have an emergency C-section. Mm-hmm. And when you get deeper into it, you might find that, I don't know, the... She failed to progress beyond five centimeters. Well, it's not emergent, but the, the child wasn't going to come out, hmm. you know, any other way. That kind oh. of thing. Who knows what it was? But um, I think that it it sits better with people to know that it didn't do everything they could do. Yeah. And, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, again, I – yeah, it's hard to know. I don't know how to measure um, – how much a woman could do that affects the labor outcome? I know it happens, but I don't know how to measure it in terms of fear or in terms of expectation but
0: um, another yeah another um, another topic that we talk a lot about is that um, very often the focus is in uh, any Pregnancy labor delivery scenario. The focus is primarily on the outcome for the baby Yes, and you hear it set, you know phrased in, well you want a healthy baby, right or it's all about a healthy baby or As long as I get a healthy baby. It doesn't matter what else happens and right. there's a large conversation going on now that we actually should be prioritizing a little bit differently because you know you have two patients it, there are two people there and it's not only about having a healthy baby and whatever happens to mom doesn't matter. Do you, I, I, how do you have that absolutely. conversation?
1: Absolutely. And it, I think that, um, if you for health, then you have to honor that side of the conversation. And I, I think from constantly learning the right way to have it, um, we all know that we have a headache and we walk in the house and the kids are screaming, your head's worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can't deny how our brain plays into our perception of health or the success of a procedure or the success of a delivery. Mm -hmm. And it has to be taken care of as much as pain, as much as, um, hydration status or anything else so i do think you're it's a really valid point and i don't think it comes to the the foreground as much as it should um knowing that there are that many ways to get to the same outcome you certainly can pick um processes that honor uh, mom's um concept of um
0: to get to her baby yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the dichotomy between informed consent and informed refusal? Huh. It's a hard one, huh? It's a really hard
1: one. Um, I, I feel lately, um, I can think of some some scenarios that I had outright refusal, but I wasn't sure that it was informed refusal. Um, I'm hoping informed consent discusses the the benefits that we hope to achieve, the inherent risks and the alternatives. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure the alternatives are discussed adequately enough, but hopefully informed consent includes all those things and an opportunity for the patient to ask questions. Informed refusal sometimes I think is, um, in my experience, more laden in fear. And just like we talked about before, when a woman comes in and says, the last thing I want is a C-section and outright refuses that, that's not informed refusal to me. She might not understand what what situations it would be um most indicated in but i think for instance my jehovah's witness um patient who might inform refuse um blood transfusion i feel really confident about all those discussions not informed refused to me
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because they understand that there might be situations where they or their baby is at risk if they Decline blood transfusion. So the dichotomy of it, I, I think um, it they both take an open discussion that mm-hmm. gets past fear, um, and um, and it needs to talk about alternatives. And I, I don't know that as providers we're always good at talking about alternatives. I think and that, we,
0: pro- yeah, I, I think in that process we also have to recognize the fear that. Um, occurs to the providers, whether that's the obstetrician, the midwife, or the nurse, when your patient downright refuses to do yeah. what you know yes. they need to do. That is scary. Yeah. That is scary. so scary.
1: Especially if I'm not a hundred percent certain that, um, that they're understanding able to tell me that they're understanding all sides of the coin.
2: Right. And
1: maybe they are, but we're in a communication gap. Um and that is extremely scary.
0: Yeah.
1: Um to refuse made uh fetal monitoring. And we're not really sure what's going on with the baby. Well it's gonna it's gonna come to me to say there might be a time where we're not recognizing that your baby's in distress and that might lead to an outcome that um, we can't recover from, that the baby might have permanent brain damage or something. And if she says, yes, I understand, then we document it from both sides that she's having her desires met and that I have felt adequate that this discussion is is done. And I will belabor something for minutes and minutes and minutes till I get it to the point where I'm comfortable that mom knows
0: what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, Heather, we've talked a lot. Yes. I feel like, you know, we're going to have to do this again and again. Okay. Some of my very most popular podcasts are the ones where I do Q and A's with labor nurses, midwives or doctors. Perfect. This this is what people want to hear is they want real life conversations with normal people talking about their areas of expertise. So I I know you've listened to a couple of my podcasts, so you know the final question is coming. And that is, where are you in your life in terms of motherhood?
1: I am childless by choice. And um, I have a dog, and I'm very happy being a a mom to a dog. But for my husband and I, um, being a mother um, of a, a human child was not something that we desired. So, um,
0: so in your it, life, in terms of motherhood, it's professional. It's exactly, and it's I, in I mean, relationship to your mother, right? Ah, yes,
1: absolutely. And I think um, it's nurturing,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it's not necessarily a biological relationship with you know something I've created. Right. So motherhood would be nurturing of friends, family, patients, um, and dog. Excellent.
0: Well, there you go. Well, this has been really great to have you on the on the podcast. And again, I'm going to probably pester you time and again to come back on and talk. It would be my pleasure. Well, good. OK, well, we'll talk again. Thank you,
2: Jeannie. Today's
0: guest was Heather Weldon, She's an OBGYN who works at Peace Health Southwest Medical Center in Vancouver, Washington. You can learn more about me and my work and donate to this podcast at jeanfaulkner.com. You can email me at jean at jean Faulkner and tweet me at jean Faulkner. This podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. So let's talk again next week, everybody. And thanks for listening, sharing, and subscribing. Bye, guys.